Hey guys, Mark Gandy, the producer of CFO Bookshelf Podcast, and we had a great show today. His name is Adam Coffey. He's going to be creating about $2 billion in shareholder value over the next four years for his investors with just, listen to this, six initiatives. That's it. And he's going to do it with the help of 19 key employees. Again, $2 billion in shareholder value. Oh, and don't worry about culture. 3,000 employees, he's going to keep it great too. And as Adam would say, the curve will be bent. Oh, by the way, Adam Coffey, he is a private equity expert. He's even written the book, The Private Equity Playbook. And that is coming up next on CFO Bookshelf. Bruce Reed, uh, good morning. Then again, it could be a good evening if you're listening to this at night or good afternoon. So Bruce Reed, the CFO for Practice Link. And Bruce, I never, I never, I never cease to be amazed at the number of personality profiles or affective assessments that are available on the market today. And by the way, it's about a $2 billion market. Well, the one I came across this week, I'm, I'm going through a recertification uh, in one of the organizations I've, I'm part of, and I came across the nine whys. Have you ever heard of the nine whys? Nine whys? No. No, I have not. Now, you, you've watched the famous, the famous TED Talk on the why conversation? Uh, no. Oh, you have too. Okay. Simon Sinek. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the three circles, why, yes. how, what. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I was thinking why. So the guy not, who, the guy who, why. the guy who, the story behind this, the guy who came up with the nine whys assessment, he watched that and he, it just, it resonated. Of course, it resonated with millions of other people uh, too, but he is a dentist and He's worked hard, but just not moving the needle, not doing anything to make a difference uh, business-wise. So he took several months to study the whys, did all of his research, and he came up with an assessment. He, he identified that there are only nine whys for any person, nine. Of course, I'm thinking, isn't there a tenth one? <laughs> Maybe there. So I want to read through these quickly because... This will tie into our guest uh, this morning. Okay. Or this evening. <laughs> or this uh, afternoon. So number one, and again, these again, he's saying that there every person has a why and, and there's no more than nine of them. Uh, number one is to contribute, uh, to contribute to a greater cause, add value, make a difference, to have an impact. D- does does that make sense for having that being someone's why? And you and I probably know people like that. Their why is to contribute. Right. Oh, sure. I I would say Mother Teresa would fall into that category. Um, Trust. Uh, Trust. Now there, you need to know what that means to build trust or create relationships based in trust. So again, I'm assuming you know people who it's it's like they're connectors or that they want peace. I mean, it's it's all about people, right? Uh, Right. Number three makes sense to make sense out of things, especially if complex or challenging. Number four, a better way, find a better way and share it, a better way, share it. The right way 
to do things the right way. <laughs> this is hilarious. To do things, oh, okay, to do things right or the right way. I thought it repeated itself, to do things right or to do things right. It's like, that's funny. Uh, number six, challenge to think differently or challenge the status quo. Uh, master, to seek mastery or knowledge. You know, I could see that being the case for professors, uh, school teachers, researchers, uh, clarify to clarify or create clarity. And then the last one is simplify to simplify it's just to make things simpler, easier. You know, that when I saw that one, I thought lean implementers, I know a number of lean implementers and oh my gosh, <laughs> you ever, even when you go to their house, uh, it's like everything is simple, <laughs> simplified, right? But that is a list of not, did you hear any words that resonated Bruce? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the, well, I guess the, the one thing I heard is that sometimes you see those, you see certain elements of that, of, of the list, uh, kind of reference in, in almost a negative sort of way, you know, like when you talk about a manager versus a leader and so doing things the right way, um, you know, are you going to do the right things or are you doing things right? And, and and not always and not always in the most positive way. So I, I think having a list that you know ha- having a list that lays those out um, is you know d- does have a resonation and being and seeing them all together and and you know not in an ex- not in a way that excludes one over the other um, opens up the I think opens up my mind to 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 thought because of time because of time. We can't run through this list again, but our topic is private equity. Our guest is Adam Coffey, who wrote the book, The the Private Equity Playbook. Great book. In fact, if you know nothing about private equity, it's a quick, easy read, but it's packed with some great information. And I wanted to go through this list because when you think of private equity, What's the first word or two words that come to mind, Bruce? Proctology exam. Say what? <laughs> Why? My, I, the, the due diligence process is the first thing that, oh, that comes to mind. Okay. The, but mm-hmm. then the second thing is, you know, is um, cashing, you know, cashing out and growing a business and you know, growing that business to a certain set of aggressive goals. Peter Lynch, we had on a couple of weeks ago, and Peter talked about, Mark, there is a different kind of private equity fund that is growing and is alive and well today. And that's the private equity fund that has a longer time horizon. And it's a private equity firm that is also focusing on culture. Obviously, obviously. The duh comment, a private equity fund, they have to make money. They have to generate an ROI, a good ROI. But when you listen to Adam, you're going to hear very, I mean, listen closely. He's going to talk about, he's going to bring up culture. And I so much appreciated that. I mean, we're going to hit a lot of X's and O's in this conversation. But I would just say, if you've got a negative perspective, if your first perspective of private equity 
is let's just say not even what you would say positive. You want to hear this discussion. And I also recommend you read the book. Again, it's called the private equity playbook. That sounds like uh that sounds like a good kicking off point to listen to uh, what Adam's got to say. So Mark, why don't you go ahead and roll the interview? Thank you, Bruce. Adam's background, very fascinating. And that's where we start our conversation. Grew up, you know, old fashioned Roman Catholic family, which means I was raised by the neighborhood because each family on each house in the street had like 10 kids. So there were a bunch of us running around, uh, went in the service straight out of high school, wasn't ready to go settle down and, and, and do the college thing yet. Had a technical background, uh, did some military technical school training uh, at, at Marshall Space Flight Center at NASA. And, you know, parlayed that coming out of the service into an engineering career. So my first part of my career, I was an engineer. Uh, it was at General Electric in the heyday of GE when they were, you know, America's most admired company, the world's most admired company. And this is the Jack Welsh era, stock splitting every two and a half years. I thought money just rained from the sky. But it was at GE that I crossed over from engineering into a business career. Uh, and I, I was fortunate to go to GE Crotonville, which is their management training uh, center, which is just up the Hudson River from, uh, from Manhattan. And, you know, great place, great time in history to really learn how to run a business. This is still when the GE leaders are coming in to teach courses. You know, it's Jack Welch and his speechwriter teaching public speaking. You know, it's division heads and CEOs of other Fortune 500 companies that were coming in to talk about uh, different modules that, that we were, were being taught. So it was a, a world-class business education. So I, I tell people that the military gave me discipline and leadership and engineering made me a meticulous planner. And it was GE who taught me how to run a business. And lo and behold, you know, at GE, Crotonville grads were in high demand as people were approaching the general manager level. You know, recruiters would start calling and start trying to pick off talent for private equity. So to come run private equity backed businesses. So when I first, you know, crossed over from GE to run a company, uh, it was for private equity. At the time, I knew nothing about what private equity was. And, and that was 20 years ago when you measured how much or, or how much capital or assets under management was in the hundreds of billions at the time. Number of firms was measured in the hundreds. You know, today I just read a statistic, $4.11 trillion in assets under management in private equity. And that's as of June of 2019. So it's probably approaching $5, five trillion by now. Um, but, you know, $4 trillion as of last summer, uh, last statistic that I could find. And, and so private equity has exploded. I've spent 20 years running three different businesses, building businesses for private equity. I built a medical service company, which was owned by private equity, was sold to Berkshire, became a division of Aramark. Wow. I, built a com I built a commercial laundry company, turned it into a from family owned and operated to, uh, to a billion dollar enterprise. Uh, and then now I'm building the, the nation's largest specialty HVAC and refrigeration service company. Uh, and I've already, I've been here for four years now. I've already flipped once and, you know, in, into my second incarnation uh, on this company. But ultimately, if you take all of my businesses I've run over 20 years, four private equity, multiple flips, multiple ownership periods, multiple shareholders, they all had a few things in common, not to sound sexist, ladies, but a bunch of guys a bunch of trucks, a bunch of broken stuff. The only difference between the three companies that I built was what was the skill set of the guy, 
what were the parts that were in the back and what was the training and skill set. You know, so one company worked on CAT scanners and MRIs in hospitals. One worked on, you know, commercial washers and dryers. And this one works on refrigeration systems in, uh, in a multitude of places across North America. So I started at the bottom. I call myself a blue collar CEO because I've held every job you can hold in a service company. Coming out of the service, I started as a field service technician, uh, working in engineering for GE in, uh, in hospitals, fixing CAT scanners, MRIs. Uh, I've worked my way up, service manager, regional manager, I've done sales roles, I've done service roles. Uh, all the way up to you know president and uh, and COO and then president and CEO. So it's been a great career, uh, and I've always you know just always been a guy. My mom says when I came out of the womb, my legs started moving, and I've never stopped. That's so funny. N- never been satisfied. Always working to build, working for the next thing. I don't know how to unplug. I don't know how to unwind or just be uh, be stagnant. I'm always doing something. Maybe you and Juan by being good at what you do. It sounds like it. <laughs> well, that, it, you know what they, they always say. It's it's a cliche that if you enjoy what you do, work is not you know not a chore. It's it's something that you just do. And in today's world, you know, without even commuting anymore, boy, I don't even know when work stops and and home starts. You know, it used to be I get in a car and at least I'd have a short drive to kind of put off you know one hat and put on the other. Now nowadays, I think uh, I I probably work out a lot more at home. Uh, than I ever did, you know, sitting in an office. You have a unique perspective with private equity. Do you do you perceive that there are misconceptions about the typical private equity firm? I think there's a lot, and that's really why I wrote my book. I, I think that when people hear about private equity in the news, generally there's a negative connotation to it. Let's talk about some guy who's a billionaire who made a bunch of money destroying a bunch of companies and and he built, you know, built his empire and his fortune on the backs of uh, of, of the working class guy, and you know, in, in America. And that's just not been my experience. You know, over the twenty years I've been working with private equity, I've built billion dollar businesses that are employing thousands of people. We were growing even in recessions, not laying off. You know, growing during downturns adding jobs to the economy and building strong cultures, you know, taking care of employees, not, you know, running a business for the sake of profits and shareholders. You know, I, I, if you look at me, service companies, one of the things that I've learned in 35 years of working in service companies and 20 years of running them is that if you can't store your company's product in a box and put it on a shelf, your product is actually people. So I focus almost entirely on people, culture, building, you know, a strong empire. The way I look at it is I don't manage revenue and growth. I manage culture. If I have a strong culture, I get an engaged workforce. That engaged workforce takes care of customers. Customers love that. They give us more stuff and revenue rains from the skies. So the secret to success in a service industry type business is focusing on people and culture. So that that's what I do. And it's because of my own personal experiences and beliefs which have been overwhelmingly positive that I wanted to write a book to provide some basic education to business owners who don't know about private equity or transitioning fortune 500, you know, mid-level executives who are contemplating going to work in a private equity backed adventure and the whole world doesn't know what these, what those words really mean. And with $4 trillion now in assets under management and over a, a trillion and a half in powder, 
I just have to tell you that 50% of every merger and acquisition activity on the planet now involves private equity. So for people who don't know what it is and how it really works, and they just get sound bites from the news and, and from politicians, you, you need to understand, you know, pick up my book. That was the intent. Try to provide a three and a half hour primer on what's this massive thing called private equity without going too deep into rabbit holes that would last you know, for uh, you know, each chapter could be a book in and of itself. So I wanted to prevent you know from doing that. So it's a it's a wide based set of topics, but gives you enough detail to understand how everything works. Let's go back to those numbers because early in the book you do mention the four trillion under management. I didn't know there was that much dry powder just out there waiting to be invested. Uh, you've had two years. I think in 2017 you mentioned there were 5,400 firms. But here's the crazy number, Adam. In 1990, you stayed at 312 firms. So you've gone from 312 to over 5,400. And of course, that number's higher in 2019. What is the why to that, in your opinion? Well, if you just think about what's the function of investing, it's to get a, a return. And in, in private equity, so right now the current statistic is if you take a 30-year average for, for the stock market, a person who invests in the stock market over the long term, it's going to get about a 7% return uh, on average. And in private equity, that currently is more than double that. Uh, top quartile firms are delivering about 23% uh, IR, you know, in, in rate of return annually. And so if you think of the stock market being at 7% and the the average of all of private equity being 14%, you're getting outsized returns through private equity. So the typical investors in private equity are pension funds, endowments, you know, wealthy families, and they have future obligations that they need to meet. They have to keep some of their liquidity you know, local to handle the needs of the day, but they also need to put some money and put it to work longer term, earning a higher rate of return. And with private equity, because of the high returns, that's what continues to fuel the drive of uh, additional, you know, investment coming into private equity firms. So back when I started 312 firms, you know, a lot of those firms, you know, as the junior people became partner level, some would split off, start their own firm, uh, and, and you know it's grown now to to, to well over five thousand. You know I'm sure by today it's it's over six thousand. So as long as the returns continue to outpace the market by a magnitude of two to one on average, then I, I think you know we haven't seen the end of this. You know private equity is going to keep exploding until that gap starts to narrow, and then potentially someone would say I'd prefer the liquidity uh, rather than a ten year private equity fund. With, uh, with no liquidity. But for now, twice the return, that's what keeps it going. There were a lot of aha moments in your book, the private equity playbook. And one of them, like one of several, were number one, I did not know there was really no liquidity to a firm. Maybe I should have known that. It's not like there's this big cash balance at any given time because it's generally invested immediately. And then you mentioned that the lifespan of a fund is about 10 years, give or take. So I was not aware of that. Was that something that was new for you? Yeah. You know, for, for me, again, I, I took 20 years of learnings and put it into a book you can read in three and a half hours. And so these were things that I picked up along the way when I first went to work in a private equity-backed firm. You know, it, it was I was chasing title money. You know, I'm going to be a CEO for the first time. 
Uh, and so I didn't really understand. And the understanding was built across 20 years uh, of, of, of working around the, the industry. But, you know, and, and that's why I talk about mutual fund because everybody understands the concept of a mutual fund and, and private equity firms, re- you know, funds are private and that it's that 10 year investment horizon. And again, all the, the money is committed up front. It's not, it's not, you don't write a check for your, you know, your investment of private equity. It's a live thing that's managed, you know, during the course of those 10 years. So you're, you're doing wire transfers as the, as the new fund is buying its first investment around the five year mark, it starts to turn the other way. You know, they're, they're buying companies. So early companies, probably are getting ready for sale now. And, and, and over the last five years of the fund, those assets that are being managed are being sold. And then typically, you know, it, it's all wrapped up within a 10-year period. There's usually a couple of extensions, you know, a couple of one-year extensions. So it could go as long as 12. But it, it's uh, there's no liquidity. You can't get your money back on demand once it's been invested. Uh, and, and it requires an investor who can you know, part with large sums of money for a very extended period of time, which is why pension funds, endowments, and very wealthy families who are diversifying, this fits their their bailiwick because they have other sources of uh, of, of investments that provide liquidity during that that time frame. But if you think about an individual or a, a pension fund, you know, a ten year fund is a very long time. If you think about your professional working career, you know, you can probably participate in three to four funds. If they went back to back, of course, you can do multiple investments at a time. But if you just managed money in one fund and then turned around and managed another and managed a third when the second was done, I mean, in three funds, you've eclipsed your entire working career. Are you finding that some PE firms are starting to have maybe a longer time horizon? Maybe I'm not going to say lifetime over the life of a company, but are you finding some that are going maybe more than 10 years? So it depends on re- really on the on the type of PE firm. If you think about owner uh, or family owned offices, so like MSD Capital, Michael Dell's uh, family uh, you know family fund or firm, if you will. Um, if I think about Ontario Teachers uh, Pension Plan, which is a self managed private equity firm that's managing their own capital as opposed to just making investments in other funds. Uh, Omer's uh, Ontario Municipal Employees uh, is another that comes to mind. So it de- really depends. I think a Pritzker, Tony Pritzker, the Pritzker uh, Family Fund that they have, uh, and, and so you know when it's a captive family or a self-managed type of investment, timeline horizons really don't come into play uh, because they're not rising or you know r- r- raising capital from outside. Uh, but the typical buyout fund still is is using that that ten year horizon. Some you know some are starting to think about call it a fifteen year fund life or fund fund horizon. Uh, but but what what happens is you know it, even if it stays at ten years, you know re- really it's just bigger firms have multiple funds. They have funds that are now specialized in different types of verticals, uh, and uh, the result of all of that in the, in the the more than five thousand firms yields a tremendous amount of potential places to invest. So that really hasn't created the issue. The only reason to extend the life is if you're trying to uh, have more time to manage the return profile. And, uh, you know, NPE, IRR is everything. So it's, it's not the multiple of invested capital, it's the rate of return. So that benchmark is then compared to 
the you know general stock market as a whole, and and that's where you know the 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 investors who are seeking places to put money to work really can measure the difference. You gave I just thought some brilliant investment advice to a CEO who's been bought out by a private equity firm. You talk about the I want to get my numbers right. You talk about the sixty six thirty four concept. Adam, that was brilliant. Could you explain what that is? Sure. And I'm going to use an example just to uh, to try to bring that to life. So uh, if I roll tape back three and a half years, uh, I'm running a company for private equity. I'm doing a a roll up. So I'm buying a bunch of smaller companies, putting them together to make a bigger company. So I buy a company from a gentleman who spent his entire life building his HVAC service company. Uh, And, you know, he sells the company to me for $16 million. And uh, I, uh, you know, most entrepreneurs think of selling a company as being one, one and done. Let's just build this business, sell it, monetize it right off into the sunset. And I, I, I have a section in my book where I just talk about why sell your company once when you can sell it two or three right. times. You know, my personal record is selling the same company five times in a 13-year, four-month four period. So in this, back to this example, I paid him $16 million for his company. He rolled over $4 million. He took $12 million home. Uh, 27 months later, when I sold the enterprise, uh, now after buying 16 companies and putting them together, uh, we got a four times multiple of invested capital, which means his $4 million rollover investment returned $16 million. So here's a guy who sold his business for $16 million. He would have been totally content to just run away with $16 million and uh, and call it a life's work. Uh, but by rolling over four, and getting four times return on investment, he, you know, he was able to generate another $16 million payday. He thought that was cool. So it was $32 million in total minus the $4 million he rolled over. So you're talking about a $28 million total return on a company he was willing to sell for 16 uh, 27 months earlier. Then he invested another $5 million and is currently a, you know, holding $5 million worth of stock in, in, in the company as we're continuing to buy and continuing to build, looking for that other big payday. Uh, and then he, he went off and bought a winery uh, and is, uh, is now doing that, but still a, an owner investor in the company that I'm building. So the 64, you know, call it rule, the, 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 the 66, 34 rule really had to do with this. The average multiple of invested capital that is underwritten by private equity when they do an adventure uh, buy a, a platform company and seek to grow it and then sell it, they usually underwrite a three times return on investment. So a three times multiple invested capital. If a CEO who sells a company that becomes the platform, or in the example I used, someone who was an add-on uh, investment to a platform that was already pre-existing, if they take 34 cents of their proceeds and they roll it forward, based on that average three times return of investment, that uh, private equity is seeking to, uh, to to gain by owning the business and then selling it later, uh, that thirty four cents becomes a dollar two, which means your second check is bigger than the first checks. Your second bite at the apple is bigger than the first bite of the apple. So I always tell entrepreneurs and encourage them: Look, you spent your life building your business. What's the first thing you do when you get a pile of cash? Is then you have to figure out where am I going to invest it next? Well, great to have diversification. That's a, an important thing. But keep some money working in that business that you know, that you understand. You know, I think about, you know, in, in my current company I'm running, 
all of the entrepreneurs who have sold me their businesses that I have now put together and am continuing to roll. I've just, I closed one a week ago. I closed two and at the end of June, you know, those, all those entrepreneurs made rollover investments and they're all still here, still here. They're all still working. They're all still running their piece of the empire and they're still engaged because this is what they know. This is what they understand. Now, sure. When someone sells a business and they're in their seventies doing a rollover probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but what I'm finding is that there's a lot of people in their 40s and 50s who are selling businesses, and those people still have a long career left ahead of them. So rather than go back to the well and figure out what to do next, why not continue to run the thing that you know, you know and partner with someone like a private equity firm where you can continue to keep money at work, take nuts, store them in the tree for winter, and, uh, and continue to build wealth doing what you do do best. By the way, speaking of numbers, the book was outstanding in terms of the key numbers you talked about. And by the way, thanks for not getting too uh, into the technical aspects. I mean, you made this sound simple. So there's a little bit of alphabet soup, IRR, MOIC, DPI. Why don't you just unpack those a little bit and then tell me what the most important number you think is of those three uh, key metrics. Sure. So think of, of IRR, the individual rate of return is just simply a percent. How much of a return does an investment that you make return to you? IRR is a very intense calculation. It gets into cash flows and a bunch of stuff. And boy, I'm a simple guy. So I, I like to think of IRR as just what's the percent of return and compare that to the typical stock market return of 7%. So if I put money to work in the stock market, I'm going to get a 7% you know, IRR. I've invested in the company I'm running. If I'm working with private equity to grow that, what is that return and how does that compare? IRR is the most uh, important measurement in the private equity world today. It's time dependent and it's the rate of return that that, uh, an investor will see. MOIC is multiple of invested capital. If I invest a dollar and you give me back $3, that's a three times MOIC. Uh, because I got three bucks back on a one dollar investment, right? Um, and but it's not time dependent, and so the IRR could change dramatically. If, if you use the investor's rule, if I get a ten percent return every year, I take seven years to double my money. Um, it, it, you know, it, so if it took ten years to get three dollars on one dollar, you know, that's roughly a seven percent return. And that's not very good. You know, if, uh, if, however, I get a three times MOIC, or in my case, I got a four times MOIC on the company I'm running in 27 months, that IRR was in the, the 56% range, something like that. Um, and so multiple of invested capital is how much money as a multiple of what I invested did I get back? IRR has the time component. The shorter amount of time I get those $3 back, the the higher the rate of return is that I, I'm achieving, but it's still $3 for a dollar. Uh, and, and so really those two measurements are the interrelated measurements that are probably the key metrics to uh, a private equity firm's performance. And they're rated just like Morningstar uh, is. You have to be kind of an industry insider to see those rankings and ratings. You have to subscribe to a data service. Private equity is private uh, by its nature. Uh, and, and then the final one, DPI, DPI is really the velocity uh, of which, you know, how fast, you know, so again, we talk about a 10-year shelf life of a fund. If people are are uh, investing money, you know, they're writing checks, 
those checks, they may not see a return for 10 to 12 years, the rate that the money is coming back. So how fast a company is built, sold, and the money is returned equals the, D, the, the, the DPI. And as a result, it, it, that's kind of the obscure measurement that uh, it really only has any relevance during the, the life of the fund in the early years. So think of it this way. If, if I have choices to make and where to return or where to invest my money, um, and two firms have the same type of IRR and the same type of multiple of invested capital, uh, I'm going to get the same kind of return in the same kind of time frame. But who's going to give me my money back quicker? You know, I might look at DPI. All of these ratings are, are against funds of the same vintage. So if a fund has a 10-year life and it started in 2009, then it's measured against all other funds that started and made their first investment in 2009. And then over the 10-year life of the fund, so just now, 2019, 2020, we're starting to get what would be the final rankings for funds that were started 10 years ago. So you rate funds like wines based on their vintage, you use IRR and, and MOIC to determine how much money you're getting back and what the multiple was and what the, the interest rate was. And then DPI no longer has any relevance at all because those funds are, are now defunct. But if you see that one firm always has statistically higher DPIs, uh, then that could cue you into the fact that, okay, uh, although it's a 10-year investment, you know, if I could get my money back in five years instead of 10, that's great. These guys return money quicker. So, you know, that might be a deciding factor in where, where to invest. Uh, and, and so, you know, again, any one of these topics can be a rabbit hole. And it's just good to understand high level, what are the metrics? What happens if you have a portfolio company that's just generating a ton of excess cash? So you got things turned around, things are humming. And again, that cash balance is going up, up, up. Maybe there are no acquisition targets for that portfolio company. What happens with that excess cash? Sure. So in those particular cases, um, typically when the business is bought, there is some amount of leverage that's put on the company. So excess cash could be used to retire, call it debt, okay. you know, and or to fund dividends back to the shareholders. And uh, although not as common, um, I would say more frequently is the pay down of debt. Uh, and then eventually a recap with a, a, a distribution off to shareholders would be more common than a, just a regular distribution coming, you know, every six months or a year, you know, from, from a company. Smaller companies, um, I, I do see distributions to cover to cover tax, uh, to, you know, so so, so that if, if there's if the company no longer has net operating losses and it's building up profits uh, and there's taxable income being generated every year, then I do see distributions to cover call it the tax burden. That needs to be paid by the uh, by, by the shareholders, but typically it's uh, pay down debt, and then at some point, uh, um, a couple of different things. If the company's growing really fast, then sometimes what a PE firm will do is they'll sell a portion of it and hold a portion of it, and so they'll sell forty percent to some other firm, take some money off the table. Uh, typically, it pays back the original equity; it's distributed back to their their uh, limited partners. Uh, and, and then what they own that's left is essentially call it without debt or without uh, you know any kind of basis, and then they can continue to run the company for some period of time. And then when it finally does sell, you know it's it's just it's a very large return. Uh, and, and so it it you, companies that are held for a long time fall into one of two buckets: either they've been a disappointment and they're trying to fix it, and it's taking a long time to get it fixed, 
or number two, they're doing so well, they don't want to part with them. Uh, and, uh, and, and so really it's, the, that's kind of it. Either it was doing really well or not. Other than that, the averages call it three to seven years, average five for, for buying and selling. Again, the name of the book is the private equity playbook by Adam Coffey. Great read. You can read it in two to three hours. I've read it twice. The sales funnel. You talk about that in the book. What's the duration from start to finish? So I'm a CEO. I have an HVAC company. So I'm going to potentially sell it to the private equity firm. What's the starting point? What's the ending point? What's kind of the time that elapses during that beginning to end? Using my company as an example, just to, to highlight it with something that's, that's real life. Um, the company I'm running today, the former owner was a private equity firm. They bought it in uh, December of 2015. So right, right, the, call it right at the beginning of 2016. Uh, I was hired in November of that year to come in and run it. And then we were able to build the company to a size to where they could get a four times multiple of invested capital and a 56% IRR, you know, 27 months after that. So it, they held it for just over three years total. Uh, and then we returned a four times return to to the shareholders. That's so from remarkable. a CEO perspective, you know, atypical is, you know, if it takes me, call it six months to a year to go through a process, to get geared up for it, to sell the business. Now I have new partners. Typical on the minimum side is going to be at least three years. And there's some tax reasons for that. If uh, if they sell that, that gain uh, in under three years, they'll pay ordinary income taxes you know, as a firm, as the partners. So therefore, three years is kind of the minimum hold period. Uh, and then, you know, typical is about a five year, but the hold periods for call it 95% of the assets a private equity firm buy will be held for three to seven years with an average of five. If it's taken longer, either they're doing really well and they want to milk, you know, milk that asset as much as they can, or just simply it was a problem investment It's taking a while to get fixed. Maybe there was a pandemic. Maybe there was a downturn. You know, think of all the, the retail businesses, you know, movie theaters, restaurants, you know, a lot of people that are struggling today in a lot of different verticals. So those investments would be held for an extended period of time waiting for the economy to come back. Uh, and so that's, that, that's kind of typical. It would be a three-year to seven-year hold period. Average is five. You know, and so a CEO who's selling a business – and then partnering with private equity can expect to be, you know, three to seven years, average five before the next payday and then do it again and then do it again. So depending on your age, depending on the growth trajectory of the company, the type of industry you're in, those are the parameters. Does the CEO have to stress out over due diligence at the very beginning? You know, uh, I I always joke and tell my entrepreneurs when I'm buying their companies that um, you know diligence is like a proctology exam that never ends. It does end, you know. And so I just recently closed a company, and from signing a letter of intent to to the closing was 23 days. Holy cow! So it was an intense 23 days. Oh. A lot of work done, but it was only 23 days. But so, it, I, I bet it was a great company, great leadership, great product market fit. All those things exist. Still a lot of checks, you know, okay. boxes to check. But yes, but, you know, typical for us, though, is 47 days. So that's uh, impressive. You, you know, we, we get enough data kind of up front from, you know, we sign an NDA. You know, we're asking for basic financial information. I have a sophisticated deal team in the business who then builds what we call a white paper. They build a model. They look at the business, the customer concentration, where the revenue is coming from, historical earnings, what have you. And we build a model and say, okay, based on what we're seeing, this company 
you know, we're willing to pay this. Once we get to an LOI, then, you know, call it, there's another 60 days. And during that time period, diligence really falls into four different kinds of tracks. There's a legal track, which has two components. You have to do all of the investigations into previous lawsuits or, or, or problems that the business may have had through operations. You also then have to negotiate the contracts, you know, for the purchase agreement. Those are kind of the two tracks on legal. There's a finance component. There's a quality of earnings. Okay, you told me what the numbers were. Let me now verify through other means that the the numbers are accurate. So there's always some type of a financial diligence going on, you know. And, and then HR and insurances. You know, what what are we paying wage an hour? You know, are are we classifying the employees right? Do we have our I nines in order? You know, what's the the pay scales? What's the benefits look like? How does it compare to the business that's buying the other business? A lot of work done in HR. And, uh, and then there's operations, you know, who are the customers, the customer segments, what are the potential synergies, where are the growth, you know, the average company that we buy grows by 25% post close within the first year. And that's because I'm bringing a bunch of national relationships to a smaller firm that has local and regional relationships, but normally wouldn't be big enough to do business with, call it the fortune 100. Uh, and so I bring those relationships, they ride our coattails, and it's kind of the marrying of those two things that uh, that that make it work. And just to illustrate for your your listeners, you know, why all this M&A, why the buy and build? You know what? When I buy a company, typically I'm paying five times uh, EBITDA, and without going into EBITDA, uh, just, let's just call it earnings. Uh, you know, so I'm paying five times. My business is, you know, traded last last year for for, for 14 times. A recent multiple of a large company traded at 20 times. So I've got, you know, in essence, if you think about it this way, for every dollar I put in the pocket of an entrepreneur, I put two to three dollars in the pocket of, you know, call it the investors and the shareholders of our business. And it's really it's the size, the scale difference that brings, you know, there's 4,500 small companies in my industry. So the prices being paid are relatively competitive, but low uh, from a multiple perspective. But I'm the largest in the business. I'm the largest in the United States and nobody's within you know, 50% of my size. And so as a result, I garner a very high multiple from, from Wall Street and I'm growing at a 27% CAGR uh, you know, or compound annual growth rate. So I'm being paid up for our size, our scale, our fast growth. And, and so there's this arbitrage between buy multiple, sell multiple that really fuels, call it the financial returns. And our owners you know, participate in that. So they do a rollover investment. And as I continue to buy other companies and put them together, you know, they're, they're getting a return as well. So it's uh, kind of all for one, one for all. Adam, you set this up for the next question perfectly, and that's margin expansion. So it's almost like you've given an, another reason for a CEO to be interested in selling to a private equity firm, because I think margin expansion is something that every CEO needs to be thinking about, but yet it's so difficult. But yet here you come in and you can expand sales, you can expand gross profit. Uh, talk a little bit about the keys to margin expansion. Sure. So there's margin expansion and multiple expansion. What we just talked about was multiple expansion, which is a bigger company gets more right. multiple of earnings than the smaller company does. But margin expansion, it really applies to any business, doesn't matter whether it's private equity owned or not. And it really comes down to, you know, as a business grows, as it gets more scale, it becomes more efficient. 
And with private equity, one of the things that I love about it, and one of the things that's changed in my personal life, you know, I, I would just say that, you know, my personal view of working with consulting groups, you know, as a young buck, you know, who was a little on the arrogant side, I'd look at a, a consultant coming in and think, why would I want to work with a consultant? I know more about this business than you ever will. You know, you're wasting my time. But since private equity wants me to do it, you know, I'll go through the motions. But as I've gotten older and more seasoned and been doing this for a long time, what I recognize now is that there can be rapid improvement. So yes, I'm the expert in running my business, but consulting groups are able to come in and talk about best practices in a generic sense of how best-in-class companies are running on a broad scale. And when you marry those together with personal knowledge of the business that's being run, you have a lot of opportunities. You know, For me, the biggest is by far technology. Investing in technology increases employee productivity, I ran a laundry company and invested millions of dollars in technology, and I got a 42% increase in employee productivity over about a five-year period. I mean, that's massive. So I'm 40% plus more efficient as I'm growing the business. I am hiring people, but they're able to do more and they're, they're being more efficient, not because they're running or working faster or harder, but because I'm supporting them in key tasks with technology. And it's through the use of technology that you can really drive uh, employee productivity, working in concert you know, to, to make their lives easier and better. The way I look at it is I, I run service companies. So my employees, the technicians who are in the trucks out in the field, they have a skill. And the more time they spend in front of broken equipment fixing things, the more productive they are. And so the the less paperwork they do, the less parts they have to order, the less time they have to drive, you know, all of those things allow them to spend more time doing what they do best and what they want to do. They don't want to do paperwork. They don't want to drive three hours to get the next service call. So I can invest in technology, satellite track vehicles, you know, satellite dispatching and routing, making sure I'm efficient to get the right person with the right part in the right place at the right time. Don't fill out paperwork, have it automatically be filled out, you know, as you're going about your day. I know what time you started because you left your house and I'm tracking your vehicle. I know what time you got to my customer location. If that customer needs a check-in, I can have somebody else in a call center or I can electronically check you in just because you pulled into the parking lot. I know you're there. While you're there, you scan a part you used off of your truck. I automatically know I have to replenish that part onto your truck. I know to move that part to the work order. I know to charge the customer You know, if the contract calls for it for the part that's used. You know, there are a lot of ways I can enhance an employee's experience just going through their normal activities during the day. So for me, I'm a huge believer in technology probably because I have an engineering background, uh, but the world is just moving so fast from a technological perspective. But it's, it's investing in technology. It's working with consulting groups. It's, it's making the sales effort more efficient. You know, there are so many different ways to attack. Uh, and, I, and I try to cover those at a cursory level in the book. You do. Simply, be, mm-hmm. simply because they, they're applicable to any company. It doesn't matter whether you're a private equity owner or not. You know, how do you take a business that's been growing? I call it, and Jim Collins, you know, wrote a book about finding your flywheel, you know, to accelerate growth. I call it bending the curve. So I, I came into a company that was growing at about a 7% CAGR every year for a very long period of time. Now I'm growing at 27%. So in order to change the, the, the growth trajectory, in order to pivot and to you know, get a different outcome, something has to change. 
And so it's, it's bringing all of these potential consulting groups to bear to focus on, you know, just think of it as just simple process bottlenecks, you know, process map everything you do, ask yourself why you do the crazy things you do. And then, you know, it, where's the bottlenecks? What stops you from being more productive? What does it take to do double the output of that process? And, and should I be doing the process at all? I put a bunch of examples in the book about things like that. And so it's, uh, there's a lot of focus that can be put and private equity owners are very sophisticated. And so as they're working with, with the entrepreneur who sold a business, they're there to help, you know, they're, they're, they're there to challenge. They're there to push, uh, because time is, is certainly not your friend when you're measured by IRR, which is time dependent. So working in concert with the entrepreneur who runs the business, they can bring a lot of resources to bear to help the business and accelerate the growth. Uh, uh, and, and that's, you know, and, and, and that's improving the margin. So you can accelerate financial returns either by selling more or being more efficient with the sales you already have or some combination or thereof, you know, and then buy and build or merger and acquisition activity can also accelerate. Adam, uh, I wrote this down. I got to plagiarize this bending the curve. Love it. Love it. I, I think you got something over Jim Collins. Hey. I think I probably stole that from somebody. I um, you know, I, I, I believe in an old GE acronym called SWIPE, which is steal with integrity, pride, and enthusiasm, which means always be looking for best practice sharing ideas. Give full credit where credit is due, which is why you know I mentioned Jim's you know Jim's flywheel because that's that that is bending the curve. That is the example. How do you bend the curve? You have to do something different. So how do you create that pivot? Uh, and for me, you know, uh, every there's always a plan. You know, I'm a meticulous planner from my engineering days, and, and so you know, in my company today, I'm going to create almost two billion dollars in shareholder value over the next four years. And I'm going to do that, and I and I'm going to do that by focusing on about six initiatives and 19 employees who are key to making those six things happen over a four-year period. And meanwhile, 3,000 employees. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of people that need to be taken care of. So I focus on culture, but the standard management runs the day-to-day operations of the business. I focus on bending the curve, uh, creating that different outcome. And look for ways to, you know, to, to create that, that flywheel, that pivot point, and, and find the blue ocean that lets you grow faster. Now you know why I wanted to chat with you. This has been outstanding. Hey, I want to I give credit where credit is due. Uh, Liz Wiseman, who is the best-selling author of Multiplier, she loves some of these last questions. So as we wrap up, I want to know some of your uh, favorite books, Adam. You've already mentioned uh, good to great, or you didn't actually say the name, but you mentioned Jim Collins, but, and it doesn't have to be business books. What are some of your favorites? What are books that you like to either gift or books that have meant a lot to you uh, throughout your career? I, 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 I think as a CEO, the work of a guy named Sandy Og, O-G-G, has probably been the most transformative to my own uh, you know, management skills or, or uh, my, my own ability to, to call it bend the curve. Sandy uh, used to work at Unilever. Then he went to Blackstone uh, and he taught Blackstone how to get, you know, how to focus on what are the specific things that need to be done, the work to be done to generate the return. How do we make sure we have the right talent in those positions? So he's an HR guy, call it an operator, you know, operations person with just extreme HR talent. 
And so Sandy has a methodology called uh, Talent to Value. So Sandy has a couple books you can find on uh, on Amazon if you just type in Sandy S A S A N D Y Og O G G. Those are two books I recommend highly. You know, I think for entrepreneurs on the op- entrepreneurial side, I'm going to go old school on you and tell you that some books that were influential to me: Millionaire Next Door, Love Millionaire it. Mind, great book. You know, you know if, if you're going to build a business. Uh, learn from others who've been successful, learn what they look like, learn about their activities. You know, how, how do they, you know, how do they spend their time? And, and I think a lot of people have misconceptions about what success looks like. And so old school books like that, coupled with call it some of Sandy's recent work, I'll throw in the Jim Collins books too. I I always enjoyed reading, you know, a, a Jim Collins work. Um, and I think it's the combination of those learnings. Okay, this is what successful people look like. This is what their activities look like. This is the concepts that I need to follow to to to, to bend a curve into business. And then here's how I have to think about the human capital or the talent side of it. You put those three things together, and I think those those can create some powerful learnings. Also, Liz Wiseman said, "I've never heard that question before." And the question is. If you're doing a TEDx talk at your nearby uh, community college or maybe a bigger university, you know, kind of an eight, nine, 10 minute talk, what would it be? So from my perspective, and I, I, I've been lecturing, you know, at, at local universities, uh, I've been speaking at UCLA for over 10 years to the executive MBA and fully employed MBA programs. And I have different modules that I, I, I talk about, but, you know, re- really when I think about um a 10 minute talk, you know, it, 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 it can include and encompass, you know, career trajectory, you know, so often you know, I've mentored thousands, literally, you know, do, do, most people in life don't have a clear understanding of what they're trying to accomplish or where they're going. They're, they're, I call it a dog, you know, dogs never have a bad day. Dogs live in the moment. A lot of human beings live in the moment uh, and they wake up and it's 10 years have gone down the road and they're still in the same cubicle or in the same office and they really haven't done anything to challenge their status quo. I think people need to be thinking about the future and thinking about what it is they're trying to accomplish. And they should be using the companies they work for as tools to gain experiences that they can build upon to reach their ultimate their, you know, their destination, if you will. So I, I talk a little bit about that. Know where you're going. That's important. Uh, in order to get there, you have to know where you're going. So that, that that's one piece. But then a second piece is you know, I, I talk about the multiple bites of the apple. I talk about entrepreneurs and selling the company and the thought of it not being a one-time event, but being a continuous event, something that they can do multiple times in their career. And a lot of entrepreneurs are one and done or a one-hit wonder. They, they build something, they're successful, and then they go back to the well and they, they struggle to find that next thing. Well, don't stop. Don't, don't go to the next thing. Stay with the first thing you know, and work with groups like private equity to get multiple paydays and to use OPM or other people's money to continue to build your empire, an empire that you know something about while you're diversifying, taking, taking some chips off the table. Uh, and, and then, you know, finally, I'd say that from a, a private equity perspective, you know, learn, you know, l- l- learn about the fact that 50% of all companies on the planet are bought and sold by private equity. Uh, and, and the likelihood of you encountering private equity in an exit, you know, process is uh, is pretty high and getting higher by the day. So don't rely on TV sound bites to educate you about private equity. So know where you're going. Um, focus then on, you know, uh, on 
continuing to build the company that you've been building while taking chips off the table. Uh, and then learn about, you know, never stop learning, you know, continue to learn about private equity, about financing, about funding, you know, expand your horizons, books by people like Sandy Og, you know, you know, even my book to learn about private, private equity. So always be learning. So I think those are kind of the three keys. And if I, I did a 10 minute TED talk, I could do a 10 minute talk on either one of those three or blend all three together. You pull my string, tell me how long to go, and you know, and, and that's that's how long I'll run for. Finally, and you're busy. I, I know, I mean, you've got a business to run, and I know you're doing a lot of things outside of work, outside of business, but is it okay if someone's heard this, maybe a CEO, is it okay for them to reach out to you on LinkedIn and say, hey, I've got a couple of questions? I mean, do you do that? Oh, I do it all the time. I've heard from people all around the globe. You know, the success of my first book um, – you know, has led to another two book contract. So there's two more books going to come out here. I'm working on the second now. It'll be out next year. Uh, and, and that one's called Maximum Value. And then I have one that I, I've called Life Lessons from the Corner Office, which is more about the mentoring, more about how to accelerate your career path to reach the corner office. Uh, and, and so I, I hear from people all the time. They reach out. LinkedIn is primary. It's not online yet, but it may be by the time this goes live. And that's just adamecoffee.com. Uh, is another place where you can you will be able to find me here shortly. But LinkedIn is a great place. Adam Coffee C O F F E Y. Uh, look me up. I, I, I hear from people all the time, and I love it. You know, I enjoy it. You know, it's it's great to it's great to get pit. You know, I've gotten pictures from people. Uh, you know, who've said you know shown their book and where they were reading it at. You know, by a by a a little hut in Bali. You know, and, and or Fiji. And I've had guys on airplanes. Um, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, I haven't had that one thing happen yet, which is where I walk on board a, a commercial air flight, sit down next to a guy who's reading my book. I haven't had that experience yet, but I have had people send me pictures from from airplanes. So I get questions all the time. Happy to answer them. Uh, I do my best to get back to everybody. I try not to ignore anyone. Uh, and, and so, you know, look, look me up on LinkedIn. I, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, I love the book. It's it's quick. It's easy. It's packed with so much value. And by the way, I just love listening to you. I, I hope you're doing more speed. I mean, you say you do this at UCLA, but uh, this has just been fantastic. Thank you a lot. Well, appreciate it. You know, I, I think that's my next incarnation. I'm still a full-time CEO today building a business, which takes a lot of time. Um, but I try to do speaking engagements when I can, where I can. And, uh, you know, whether it's for groups like ACG you know, or it's, uh, it, you know, it, it's local business events or uh, keynotes for different size companies. I've, I've done some of that work as well. So, uh, you know, I enjoy doing it. You know, it's a, it's going to be my future at some point when I ha- hang my full-time cleats up, you know, a little bit more teaching, a little bit more lecturing and speaking. Uh, and I enjoy it. That That's a, a fun part of, uh, of, of what I do. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now, back to your hosts, the no-name CFOs, Mark and Bruce. 312 firms, Bruce, 312. That was the number of private equity firms in 1990. And in 2017, there were 5,391. We talked about that. That's just staggering. Does that surprise you? Uh, I don't know if it, I don't know if it surprises me. It's, it, you know, there's just there, there is a lot of activity out there, and you and with the number of of outreaches that I get, and that um, that we get collectively at Practice Link, 
there's there's a lot of money out there looking to looking to do things. So on one hand, it's just, you know, it, it is big, but I can't say that it's a shock. One thing I do want to say before we go further, I, I do want to ask you a question. Uh, just another shout out to Adam, just very uh, giving. I mean, he was early. In fact, he beat me uh, on our, our Zoom call. We don't record the Zoom discussions. I use Zoom to get it through our, our, our magical audio box where we do all the recording. And very, just, he was energetic. Uh, he's the kind of guy where I would want to go to lunch with him and more than once. Um, it's like, hey, I got all the time you need. But again, Adam, if you're still listening this far, thank you. I do want to mention we, we had, we had a, a, one of the questions we talked about the alphabet soup, IRR, MOIC, DPI. But I do want to revisit IRR just for a minute. And even as a small town, mom and pop, CFO who works with businesses from uh, 10 to $50 million, I mean, you ask a lot of them what IRR, IRR is, the internal rate of return. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> but yet, yet for a mom and pop CFO like me, it is a absolute critical concept. Notice I said concept. Yes, we do the math as well. Thank you, Excel. It's like, <laughs> right? I, I don't know how to do, I don't know that formula from school. Just let, X, let, let Excel X, do it. X-I-R-R. <laughs> so my question for you is, how relevant is I-R-R to you, Bruce? I think, I think it's relevant to everybody. There, I should need to know you know how the cash flows of the of the business are are returning uh, are returning and generating wealth. I think it's all you know. It's it's also an important it's also an important uh, factor in in valuations um, there. So I, I think that that internal rate of return is is vital to somebody who's either you know just working in the business or is preparing the business to present to outside interests. Here's how I'm doing using it with my, the, some of the companies I work with. You take an e-commerce company that sells golf clubs. And again, this is a company that it, it may be a company that has no intentions of selling, at least maybe, you know, cashing out maybe for another 20 years or so. They may not be doing any acquisitions, at least not the one that I have in mind, so it's like, well, what's the applicability to IRR, IRR? And to me, again, go back, I use the word concept. Think about time. What is your return on time? And so that is how I'm using that concept where you don't necessarily get to fill in uh, the blanks where you can do the calculation as Excel does it so elegantly. That's where I'm coming from is what is the best use of time? And again, you can't quantify it. Well, some people may say you can, but that's how I am using that all important concept. Make sense? Yeah, definitely. So when, when do the returns start? You know, you could, you could have over a 10 year period, a, you know, the same net cash, but if it's, if it's coming all at the end, you, you know, it's a different ball game than if it's coming sooner. Well, good topic. 
And again, Adam Coffey, thank you very much. And I think, Bruce, you need to wrap us up. All right. Uh, yeah, loved, uh, loved, this, uh, loved this author, love that book, and glad we had a chance to dig a little bit deeper. Mark, have a great weekend. Everybody out there, stay safe, stay well, practice love and empathy, and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>